3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation, and recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Hope you're excited for the week ahead and had a, had a good weekend. And good morning to you, Jackson. Good morning, James. Did you have a good weekend? What did you get up to? Um... It wasn't bad. Um, I guess a mixed, a bit of a mixed bag. Um, trying to finish some uni work. Um, I guess it was a bit like the um, Cats game on Saturday. It had some, had some highs and lows, and um, you know, in the end, we got through and. We're here again. Uh, yeah, I was hoping that we wouldn't talk about football for the fourth week in a row. I mean, my team won. It was great. We had four down on the bench in the last quarter, and you'd be horrified as a St Kilda supporter not being able to get up. But um, I actually did some, you know, expansive cultural activities that weren't that didn't resolve around football, which makes me mm-hmm. pretty pretty happy over the weekend. I saw a really good film yesterday as part of uh, MIF, the Melbourne International Film Festival. It was called Yours in Sisterhood. Uh, as a really interesting documentary. Um, made by an American woman whose name I'll find in just one moment. But the reason I liked it was that it was a really simple idea, um, which was they, they gathered together. The woman was called Irene Lutzig, is her name. Uh, the, she's the director, the cinematographer, and the writer of the film. They got all these um, unpublished letters written in the 1970s uh, by American women into this magazine called Miss Magazine, which was kind of the first openly feminist... It was associated with the NOW movement, with the kind of... um, uh, with women's liberation, uh, sexual liberation, these types of things. But what they did was they got these letters from all over America, you know, small towns, um, about a range of issues, you know, about uh, trans women, about women of colour, about LGBTI, about... Women just are simply wanting to get education, to get a say within their households, um, to get some to get some power, to get involved in the movement. But what they cleverly did was they they got people today in the same small towns in America to read the letters directly to camera. Uh, women who had no association with the original letter writers, for the most part, she did actually seek out some of the original letter writers. But it was incredibly powerful um, seeing these current women, uh, you know tap into the minds and into the lives of women 40 years ago and see how those issues had developed or not over time. And perhaps one of the most interesting things about those, I had letters from women in prison writing in them. I guess one of the most interesting things was, you know, it was discussing such a broad range of issues, but sadly the vast majority of these letters were not published mm. because they were too confrontational in the 1970s for Miss Magazine to publish and not lose its audience. And, um, yeah, just a, a really good film. If you're, if you're listening and it, it sounds interesting, it's called Yours in Sisterhood, a film by Arin Lutzig, and it's, um, yeah, it was, it was excellent. really enjoyed it. Well, that does sound very interesting. I... I did get out to the country on the weekend, so that was nice to get some uh, country air and have, um, yeah, just to be amongst the dirt and 
you know, all of that. So that was that was nice. What part of the of the country? Uh, out to Wedderburn, which is um, past Bendigo. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a fair way out. Yeah, so okay. that was nice. Um, yeah, so that was good. It was it was a nice weekend, mm-hmm. and um, the well, the assignment that I'm working on for uni uh, is investigating Australia's asylum seeker approach, and the thing I'm focusing on is from the Tampa till today. Mm. Um, so actually it has been kind of probably spent far too long um, doing more research into um, like the issues around the Tampa and reading a lot about that, which is interesting and highly depressing um, to realise how much from that, you know, from Howard to today that we have not changed and the policies that remain for asylum seekers seeking refuge in Australia are still terrible. Yeah, have you read um, David Marr's Dark Victory as part of your research? No, I've read. I have read a bunch of things that um, he wrote around the time. But mm. not, yeah, yeah, that was a real eye opener for me. Just the level of kind of obfuscation and um, the cynicism of the government approach at the time, um, because I think Tampa was really instrumental in getting Howard re-elected at a time mm. when his popularity was um, falling. It's just uh, really sad to see the way. Xenophobia and um, racism have been used in this country in the last, uh, particularly in the 21st century, uh, in, a, in the political sphere. Yeah, it was in, it was the uh, August 2001, and obviously the September 11 um, attacks happened mm. a month later. And actually, I am arguing that the Tampa incident changed asylum seeker policy in Australia and influenced the kind of language that is still used today in much the same way that that attack has changed security um, policy. Mm. Um, Yeah, so it's really interesting to go back to that timeline of events and see the way the government lied to the people as well, Um, you know, which that clearly came out. We sort of knew knew at the time, but it came out in the subsequent um, Senate committees that happened after that. And there's something I want to talk about in Alternative News that talks about... Which we have not started yet. Um... Which talks about how the government is uh, misleading the public once again. Hmm. Well, that sounds interesting. Perhaps we should play the tune and start that segment. Or maybe we'll just do a quick run-through of what's coming up on the show. I think it's a good idea. Uh, So, I don't know. Well, I hope our listeners will just tune into. Uh, Beyond Zero Emissions or BZE, which was on just before, which they were having a wide-ranging discussion about kind of new ways for medium-sized enterprise to purchase renewable energies from wholesalers at wholesale prices and get these lock-in non-variable contracts that sounded a lot like mortgages. Uh, They were also talking about what they were reiterating a number of times was that, you know, that the cost incentive to, to go to renewables is just it's just you know scientific fact now it's much cheaper but i went to the um anarchist book fair over the weekend and heard a talk by a sociologist called Terry Lay who was uh singing a very different tune about the green revolution and the the amount of time we're told recently that there's this um there's going to be this kind of green capitalist utopia where we're going to reform the system and move to green energy and it's going to solve all of our environmental problems and he was very much uh not uh, walking along that track, and I've got a, a an interview, an interesting interview that I did with him. Um, I guess he's following some of the ideas of Ted Trainer, um, 
in terms of trying to reduce our energy usage instead of just transferring to a different form of energy. In term, uh, and he thinks that's going to be the most important way to save the environment. But it's a it is a, a radical proposition um, which we'll get into over a kind of two parts, and maybe we can pause in the middle, have a bit of a chat mm-hmm. um, about what he's suggesting. Uh, yeah, so I'll play that you know, after alternative news, probably about 7.20, I'd say. That'll be on if our, our listeners are interested in hearing a critique of green capitalism, I suppose is what I'd call it. Uh, and I, I've got a chat that I had with um, Chris Graham, who is the editor of New Matilda, and also recently um, partook in the Gaza Peace Flotilla. Uh, it's the second time that... Chris has been on that voyage, and uh, they were intercepted by the Israeli Defence Force and boarded, um, arrested, and held in Israeli jail for a period of time. And um, yeah, a lot of us friends of of Chris and obviously people of, of other people that were on board were quite concerned for their safety for a period of time, as we were not able to make contact and unsure what was happening necessarily with. Um, with those those journalists and activists and um yeah it's a really interesting chat with Chris and I think um a lot of people would be interested to hear about that journey and uh what was happening there and um you know supporters of, of Palestine, Palestinians that are fighting for their rights. So yeah, we'll have that and we've got our regular show, a regular segment over the wall. So let's um with Vern Hughes again this week, I believe, part two part of their interview with yep. Vern Hughes. Uh, but let's get into um, alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty. Well, what I wanted to talk about, which... It's not necessarily, I guess, alternative news because um, it's something that has been, uh, you know, a very large part of the news over the past week. But I think it's important to touch on because I, I don't feel it is getting as much traction or much news as it really should, which is that the Australian government... <coughs> sorry, uh, I've got a little bit of a cold, so I just had to step away from the mic for a second, but... Thanks for being in here, Trooper. That's very that's good. That's okay. Um, but the Australian government, uh, as I'm sure most listeners would have heard, has given $444 million to the Great Barrier Reef Fund. Yeah, that was weird. So more and more information has come out about what this organisation is. And unless you were a corporate elite of a mining company, I don't think you would have known the company previously. Uh, I read over the weekend that one of the things that they've been doing and you know what they like to give is an experience to um, executives so they take them out to these tropical islands staying at these uh, resorts that cost thousands of dollars per night and let them see the kind of beauty of the the reef and the water out there and that they will go back with quote an experience that will Promote to, promote philanthropy. Yeah, well, try to change some of the... You know, some of the people on the board are people from Rio Tinto, Whoa. BHP. 
So it's that that kind of experience of seeing nature in in all its beauty, in all its bleached beauty, will perhaps try to change them from polluting and creating the the problem in the first place. So you know, I guess just to touch over some of the issues that maybe people um, you know not quite across all of this is that there was no um, they didn't request this money. No, that that the organisation was surprised. They said it was like winning Tats Lotto. They didn't apply for a grant. No, there was no tenor, tenure process. So that means that, you know, generally, even for quite small amounts of money, when you um, try to when you receive money from a government for a project like that uh, to, to undergo a project, generally there will be um, a process by which a number of organisations, individuals, whatever the you know need may be at the time, can apply to be the the best candidate to receive that money. And that's to make sure that there's a fair process, that the best uh, best organisation, the best group is, is given that money. That would be a standard process, a tenure process, yeah? I, yeah. I, I heard from the uh, chief of, um, uh, you know, a body representing charities and uh, not-for-profit, the not-for-profit sector, about the difficulty with the Turnbull government in getting even small grants. You know, we're talking, you know, less than $10 million. So, you know, massive amounts of money being spent by organisations on con- uh, uh, consultation and experts coming in to help them write sometimes, you know, 100 pages of dossiers and then those being rejected. So the idea that the government would just come and give a single small organisation an incredible sum of money in what is a you know a very political issue, uh, yeah, but it's, it's shocking. Well, there's an interview that happened uh, yesterday on the Insiders program, and host uh, Barry Cassidy was interviewing Energy and Environment Mr. Josh Frydenberg. Mm-hmm. He asked, and this is a quote from Cassidy. What steps did you take or the PM take to satisfy yourself that the foundation was the best organisation to accept this grant? Frydenberg. Well, the department has made it very clear that the foundation is the best organisation we can leverage. And again, I won't go through, I won't go through the whole thing because Cassidy asks the same question in a different way four times and he does not answer how there was a process at all or why this organisation is the best. And I just, want to reiterate that this is $444 million Half a of billion. taxpayer money Half a billion that is going dollars. to what seems to be uh, basically uh, an expense for corporates to have a great time on our money. Uh, this is a tweet from Christina Keneally over the weekend. said, uh, let's see, private meeting on 9th of April, private foundation, board members from Goldman Sachs, no grant application, no due diligence, all wrapped up in 20 days, no finalised agreement presented, and all $444 million went out the door by the 30th of June to undisclosed banks. Transparency, Turnbull style. And this is, we uh, hear, and you know, people are outraged about the kind of deals or lack of deals or type of deals that Donald Trump is doing in America. And we are concerned about the conspiracy or... Um, corruption about um, Russia and America, let's have a look at our own backyard because this is this is a type of, um, I think, incompetence. This is a type of, you know, perhaps alleged corruption that really shouldn't... Like, if a, if a government wins an election after this, 
I I don't know what to do because honestly, this is this should be a um, nail in the coffin for this government. If they can win an election after, you know, uh, what appears to be basically embezzling half a million dollars. I think that's ridiculous. So the company in question, the uh, Great Barrier Reef Foundation, had a turnover, which is not, you know, this is all of the money that went through its mm. books. This isn't its profit, or well, it's a not-for-profit, but this isn't what it spent or what it was able to fundraise. It's its total turnover for the year was $8 million last financial year. So they've just been given, I, I can't even do those maths, 440 <laughs> times it, that. I think one of the real complications is because it's going to an organisation called the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, there's a tendency for those on the left and environmentalists to think, well, that's great, that's money going towards a much-needed cause. But you need to look, you know, like you're describing, one of the functions of this organisation is to tour executives around the reef. You know, I, I heard the chief scientist from the Great Barrier Reef uh, Foundation talking about the uh, the fact that most of the money will be used in partnership with James Cook University and the CSIRO. These were the kind of noises he was making, that they will be doing research in how best to save the reef. But when you hold this up against the National Energy Guarantee, which makes no promises about meeting emissions targets, you know, like we need a pretty radical approach. You know, half a billion dollars would be a good start to try and save the reef, but to... to yeah, the lack of transparency, the lack of... It's not as though the government said, announced that we would like to give a large sum of money towards this important issue. Instead, what they wanted was the headline, government gives large sum of money to Great Barrier Reef. So people go, oh, well, they do care. You know, mm. they, they, they do care about the environment. They, they do care about saving this incredible natural wonderland and the ecosystem it supports. And that's, that's all they want you to read into it. I think I agree with you. If you look around the edges of this, you know, pretty smelly deal, you know, in the words of Andrew Wilkie, at best a collapse in proper process, but at worst a dodgy stench. Um, but the Business Insider website, which is hardly a left-wing publication, says that the organisation spends more than forty cents of every dollar just on administration. So it isn't. I would say it's not even an organisation that is running. You know, it, that's how, not how I think a not-for-profit should be run. But, but like you said, it, it's not, it's not actually doing. I mean, if if the money was, you know, if there's no process, but well, I still think there needs to be a process by which you hand out this kind of amount of money. But you know, it's not even going to an organisation that is doing anything positive, as you said, for the reef. Uh, but anyway, I think you know, that's. I think we can talk about this further, and perhaps we need to come back to this. Um, in the coming weeks, because hopefully there's going to be a bit more of an inquiry into this and, um, you know, let, let's have a chat about this further. But, Jackson, you wanted to chat about some activities you did over the weekend? I just wanted to talk briefly about the uh, Anarchist Book Fair. I had a really good time. I'd never been before. I've had a good year this year. I went to my first Marxism conference and my first Anarchist Book Fair, so I was able to, you know, see two of the kind of, I guess, um, bigger profile um, uh, left-wing uh, gatherings in, 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 that Melbourne puts on. Uh, you know, to talk about a range of different political issues. They had very different approaches. I can't, I must say I enjoyed some of the irreverence and humour at the Anarchist Book Fair. It was, uh, qu- quite a lot of fun. But, um, I mean, the, the, the things that I went to, I went to one called, um, 
the possibilities and challenges of radical education today, which is really interesting for me working in the education sector, just talking about ways to bring more radical ideas into the classroom. It was run by an organisation called Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice, or Message, uh, and that was uh, really cool, um, but I won't go into too much detail on that one. The one that I really wanted to talk about was... Um, a workshop run by someone called Anthony Kelly. Um, I think he's from the um, uh, Flemington, Flemington, Kensington Legal Service and um, talking about uh, Victoria's racialized crime panic and points of intervention. And for me, as, a, as an alternative media maker, it was a really valuable session to attend because they were talking about the link, um, the symbiotic relationship between the police, politicians and the press in fostering moral panics and kind of uh, that they all uh, benefit off the outcomes of these moral, moral panics and the marginalising of um, you know, certain communities uh, and the anger and fear that generates in the populace. It sells newspapers, it gets votes and it gets more funding into law and order. And it made me really think about, you know, it's definitely something that I've wanted covered. Um, I'm not sure whether I've done the best job at it, you know, not having a lot of connections in the African community here in Melbourne. And it, you know, made me reflect on the kind of approaches that when, you know, these things hit the news, you know, you want to join the conversation, but are you joining it in the right way? And interestingly, the um, panel that was done on Thursday breakfast last week here on 3CR was raised as a really fantastic example of, of, alter, of, the way that media can engage with it in a really responsible way. And people but, can listen back to that. Yeah, and I, should. and I haven't listened to it yet. I'm really looking forward to going back and listening to it because, um, yeah, it was a, a number of people at the conference. They weren't 3CR plants, you know, they, they, and they were <laughs> openly talking about the fact that it was a fantastic example of... Um, of one method of combating these kind of racist narratives. But Anthony was also talking about, you know, how, how slow the left has been in reacting since those Moomba events in 2016 and the way the right have used very explicit racialized language to drive this message more and more commonly. And, you know, we're seeing it reflected more and more in the mainstream press, which I think we discussed a little bit last week as well. Um, but, you know, he's talking about the fact that, you know, racism is not an individual failing. It's not about pointing at people and saying, you are a racist person, you know, that it's more continual and functional, that it reinforces political, economic and psychological aims. And it's like we need to constantly be talking about the structure of racism rather than instances of racism. Uh, and also talking about, you know, the ways that these things get amplified by the media and the need for alternative media or for people wanting to join in this discussion to shift the discussion away from individual groups and always focus on the systemic problems of racism that they cause, always punch up essentially when you're engaging in criticism rather than, um, you know, and, and really focusing on, you know, a narrative to counter this very strong narrative that the right have developed around, uh, you know, you know, all of those classic um, kind of Edward Said orientalist othering and... Um, you know, kind of, um, yeah, racial stereotypes and, you know, talking about some of the, um, the techniques that are available to us, like amplifying voices that are rarely heard, uh, like interrupting the development of prisons and the development of prison funding, you know, showing solidarity with these groups, getting, you know, getting out and standing side by side. And some really interesting discussion as well of, of fighting like, um, uh, what was the term they used, like model minority behaviour or respectability politics, you know, and I, and I think that was a trap that I may have fell into looking for uh, a spokesperson where you get a spokesperson who comes in and really parrots some of the lines that are coming out of the police and the government that we need neighbourhood watch and we need special programs and, you know, and I, I just think it's really important to try and get some alternative stories and I met, you know, a really uh, lovely woman, Manira there, who... um 
you know, said she'd be happy to point me in the good direction of some stories to tell to attack this in a better way. So I, d- I just thought it was worth mentioning that it was a great panel run by Anthony Kelly and, um, and really, uh, really enjoyed it. I, um, I wrote a paper last, um, semester talking about some of the issues around the way media portrays, uh, you know, people in the, um, African communities in, in particularly around that kind of area. And so I, I relied heavily on, um, documents that are on the Flemington Kensington um, website. So if people want to, there's a number of um, case studies and uh, police accountability report, which is something that Anthony has been involved in. The police accountability project, yeah. So there's there's a number of uh, things on there that they're really, they're quite easy to read. They're, they're documented in a really straightforward kind of manner. And I think that, um, yeah, if people are interested in finding out a bit more about the work that Anthony and the team have done there, they should check that out. Yeah, policeaccountability.org.au. They've set up a really good website yep. for that. Um, yeah, anyway, great session. Thanks for putting it on. Well, um, I think that wraps up our um, alternative news section. Perhaps we will go straight into the first part of the talk that you... Yeah, so this is uh, Terry Leahy, a sociologist uh, based out of Newcastle, down in Victoria, talking at the Anarchist Book Fair. That's where I interviewed him about why green capitalism can never work. And in this first part, he responds to two popular alternatives uh, to green capitalism, which we hear a lot about. Uh, He responds to both radical reformation and social democracy. I'm here at the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair with Terry Lay, who is a sociologist, and he's just given a presentation on green capitalism or green capitalism, the green economy that we hear so much about. So we we are always hearing these days about the great green opportunity, the jobs, the investment, etc., etc. What's wrong with this eco-capitalist dream? Well, there's a number of problems with that. The The main thing is the structure of the capitalist economy creates growth as an inevitable effect, and it's impossible to to deal with this growth without having very bad environmental consequences. So if we have a 3% growth rate, in, tw- in 23 years we're going to double our production. If in, in 46 years we're going to, it's going to be four times and so on and so forth. So basically the, the problem is that what capitalism produces a growth economy by virtue of the market, the very things that make capitalism efficient that cause increasing productivity and so on are exactly the things that create growth. The competition between firms, if a firm doesn't do well and doesn't profit as well as as some other firm, then shareholders will dump it and move to the other firm. So that means that there's always a motivation for the the managers of a company to reduce... um, to reduce labour, to increase their technological efficiency, to bring in new technologies, to produce more with less work, uh, less labour and less costs. And and in doing that, they they create an increased amount of production which has to be marketed somewhere. So for for capitalism to work, it constantly has to grow. And this this creates a huge environmental problem. That would be the main thing I'd say. Can I just ask what the connection is between growth and environmental degradation? Yeah, okay. So people sometimes talk about the idea that we could have growth without environmental depletion, uh, that everything could be done sustainably. In fact, growth is associated with environmental problems. So, for example, if the economy is growing at 3% growth rate, we know that energy use is growing at something similar to that. This, these sort of things are, 
are facts of the capitalist economy. The reason is that from the point of view of, of managers of individual firms, they don't have any motivation as such to, to, to worry about environmental problems because basically if, the, if an environmental problem is going to cause an increased cost, then it's in their interest to ignore it. And, and this, is, this is part of this built into the structure of the economy. One of the other things we often hear in the media, one of the arguments for a green economy, is that the sun gives solar energy for free, the wind blows for free, but something you said during your talk was that green technologies will actually cost more. What did you mean by that? This is a very controversial idea within the environmentalist movement. A lot of environmentalists believe that, um, green, that sustainable energy is even cheaper now than, than fossil fuel energy. My, my understanding of this is based on writings, especially by Ted Trainer, an Australian writer, uh, author, and, and also by the peak oil movement. Basically, um, when you examine this, what these accounts fail to take into account, uh, the, these optimistic scenarios fail to take into account, is the extent to which we need to create backup power uh, if we're moving to a, like 100% renewables, then we need more and more backup power. Um, there are periods when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. These are things that are often said by the right wing, but what we need to realise is, as environmentalists is that a lot of these things are actually true. And if we have a capitalist economy that we actually, with a 3% growth rate, not only do we have to replace all the fossil fuels in, in use now, but we have to produce four times that amount of energy in, 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 you know, in, in 46 years or something like that, um, and, and so on. So if there must be growth in a capitalist model, and growth is definitely going to lead to environmental degrada uh, degradation, what are the possibilities for sustainable models of energy production or sustainable models of running the economy? I think you gave three examples during your talk. Could you just run through those three examples and a few of their pros and cons? Okay, so there are three kinds of uh, alternatives to capitalism that have been promoted by sections of the left and the environmentalist movement. So the first one that I'm going to talk about is called Radical reformism. This is the zero growth approach um, initially promoted by Herman Daly, an American economist. And actually it's zero growth, a massively regulated economy uh, which produces zero growth by making the cost of non-renewable resources really go through the roof and, and cuts back economic activity through that. It's massive amount of government regulation and control, a guaranteed adequate income for people who, who don't have a job because of this zero growth policy um, and so on and so forth. My problem with it is that um, I think a large part of the, the elements of the capitalist economy are left intact in this model and would lead to similar problems. The second thing I think is if that you get the political will to bring about such a vast change, you're actually going to find people demanding something more substantial that has a bigger effect on their own daily lives. Okay, that's the first model. The second model is the democratic socialist model, which, which comes from the sort of left-wing, small left-wing parties that still exist around the place, uh, you know, like the Socialist Alliance and so on. These, um, they, they, what they favour is democratic government, central planning, 
uh, every, most uh, industry would be owned and controlled by the government. People would, ha- would have jobs in, the, in their jobs. They might have some limited amount of control through workers' control in their jobs, but basically they'd be following out the dictates of a central plan. Um, my problem with this model is that I, I, the, 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 the model basically retains alienated labour. People are still working for a wage to make money and, and have to... Uh, so, and the same thing with owners of firms who, who are managers of firms employed by the government. Their, 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 their status, their income depends upon expanding their production and, and doing things more, you know, like responding to the market, in other words. Similarly, for, for workers, their experience of work is, is frustrating and alienating and they basically look to consumer goods to, to fill the hole in their life that their work has left with them with. So I don't see it as an alternative. I think it's massively unpopular. If you tell people in, in rich countries today that what they need to do is to move to a massively more regulated and controlled life run by governments, there's just going to be a big yawn and people are not interested. This is James Henry here and you're listening to 3CR 8.55am and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast and that was the first half of a interview I did with Terry Lay at the Anarchist Book Fair over the weekend. I think it's a pretty controversial statement to say uh, that uh, people are just going to yawn by the idea of a centrally planned energy system, you know, or energy system in the hands of government rather than private companies. But I think it is an interesting idea that the kind of main alternatives we are sold at the moment may not have the outcomes that we are expecting. Uh, in the second part of this interview, he lays out his third alternative uh, to the current capitalist uh, disaster that's occurring in the in the environment, which is an anarchist gift economy. So stay tuned. The third is the anarchist gift economy or non-market socialism. This is that um, people um, form themselves into voluntary groups to produce things and they produce things either for their own use, like a community garden, or, uh, or for the use of other specified members of, of the community, like, say, for example, a train service running between Sydney and Wollongong or something like that, uh, that, that all of these organisations are, are run in a completely voluntary way. There's no money and the, and the state does not coordinate this. The coordination occurs between different, uh, different organisations which, which have a relationship with each other of providing for, for the other one. So, for example, if you had a train service, then there's some people who are running the train service. There's another group of people who are producing the tracks and rails, and that's another, like another company, if you like, companies of... Of, let's call it a cooperative, and then there's another group producing steel for the, for the rail people who are making the rails. Each of these three organisations is linked by agreements between them. So the members of representatives and members of these different organisations meet and plan production, what they're going to provide for the other, for the other part of the, the chain. It's not a barter system so that when you get on the train as a member of the public, you're not paying in, in a chicken or you know, a couple of cabbages or something like that. It's just so like you just get on, you don't even need a ticket to ride, it's free. So there's no money involved in any of this. That's, this is the anarchist gift economy system. 
my view is that this is the best possible alternative. It completely eliminates alienated labour. People are doing the things that they want to do. They enjoy their lives at work and they don't require vast amounts of consumer goods to compensate them from, for, for that. There's no motivation to produce what's more than what's necessary. When all these decisions are being made, people are aware of environmental problems and don't want to stuff up their own community livelihood and their own situation. There's no economic motive for, in, for doing this kind of things that are going to cause environmental damage. I also think it responds to people's needs to have more freedom and, and control in their lives. It's something I've always been really interested in. You know, I've, been, I've grown up uh, in capitalism's zenith. You know, it is all pervasive. We're told there is no alternative to the profit motive to, to motivate people, that, that, that you're a sociologist. You know, we often hear things like, if there wasn't the profit motive, if there wasn't this universal currency in cash, it would be impossible to get people to do things. And people, as you've also described, are very resistant to change. In some, in some instances, particularly those that are benefiting from the current system. So I guess, how do you convince both ordinary workers who currently work for a wage which they then spend on leisure activities and the capitalist elite ruling classes that this model that does away with personal wealth, that does away with aspirational status sig signalling can deliver happiness, harmony and a functioning economy? Well, I'd say one thing just to start before I answer your question is that it doesn't do away with aspirational status. The status comes from being part of the production team which is producing useful gifts for other people. So that, so that that's kind of rewarded. So that it, like you might even have a festival where you deliver the train, you know, like and, and there's flowers and music and, you know, lots of food and stuff like that. So it's like... It's not true that it does away with status. Okay, I'll just say that. In terms of whether or not it fits with human nature, human history is divided into two parts. The second part is class societies based upon competition and conflict and a ruling elite taking control of the whole of society. That is only like about maybe 5% of human history. The other 95% is egalitarian um, groups of people working together and producing for each other and cooperating. So although certainly people are greedy and, and you know like and selfish and competitive and all of that is true, but nevertheless um, at the end of the day people can see benefits in cooperation and I'm confident that the gift economy could actually work in that in that in that context. And as I said, you know like. There's, 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 if people want to be competitive, they can comp they, in, in these traditional societies, they compete by providing for other people. That's, that's what we need to move towards. Mm. Rather than collecting trinkets for themselves. Yes. Yeah, and in terms of, in terms of what, to offer, what to say to people, I, I mean, I'd be saying capitalism is seriously stuffing things up. There's no, there's no future with this society, and by now we know that. Uh, it's, it's become obvious that it just can't possibly solve these problems. And the other two solutions, you know, radical reformism and democratic socialism, are not attractive. So I'd be saying to people, 
the, the gift economy gives you the opportunity to start doing the things you think are important and working on the kinds of projects you think are worthwhile and helping other people through that work. That, that's a golden opportunity which the gift economy and no other form of, of organisation can deliver. Uh, and, and I'll be promoting that idea that we need to move to a society without money where money doesn't decide things but people decide things through meeting together and working it out. So final question. Can you describe to me at both a local level and a national level what a, a utopian green economy looks like for you? Yeah, okay. So what it looks like is that um, most um, food and a lot of furniture and houses, house, house production is all, is all controlled at a, and, and organised at a local level by little local community groups which meet and democratically organise what to produce. You know, like community gardens or even people's backyard gardens cooperating with each other and, and producing a lot of this stuff. It's a, so it produces gifts and shunted around the community. Um, at the same time, different, different little, uh, let's call these villages, um, may also specialise in some high-tech production and be part of a chain of production which produces something like you know, an MRI scanner for a hospital or computers and laptops or mobile phones or something of that type, they would be doing some of that work and other, other people from other villages would be doing And what I envisage is that is that we're looking at, you know, like out of a seven-day week, we're looking at maybe two days a week of, 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 of work of that type which is, which is actually de devoted to producing high-tech production necessary to run... Uh, an affluent economy, an economy which would be experienced by people as affluent, although it would be, a, in many ways, it would be a, a, a less, less consumer goods than we have now. Mm. These villages would be connected by electricity um, and by uh, solar and wind-powered rail lines, which would run, maybe just run when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. We wouldn't be under the sort of time pressures that we're under now in a capitalist economy, so we could do that. There'd also be bullet drays and in local areas, there'd be donkey carts and things like that. People wouldn't have private cars. Uh, most food production would be for local use, so we wouldn't need even refrigeration and certainly not, not massive amounts of transport of food everywhere. Um, in terms of international trade, it would be mostly by sailing ship, although we could possibly envisage uh, airships or something like that being possible. It's, it's hard to know at this you know, we, we, we haven't, we've only just been scraping the surface of what green technologies uh, might be available in, in a sort of low resource use economy because we haven't, we're not in one. Well, thank you very much for taking some time today and enjoy the rest of the Anarchist Book Fair. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's great. Stay tuned to 3CR, support community radio and your local music scene and subscribe now. CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. 
You are tuned in to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is 7.42am. The weather outside is cold. I'm not sure of the exact degree, but it's cold. Uh, that was Terry Lay from the Anarchist Book Fair, and we're now joined in the studio by another programmer at this year's event. Uh, Layla, welcome to the studio. Hello. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, stall and the workshop that you ran on Saturday? Yeah, of course. Um, so my stall was uh, made up of my entire book collection. So I thought that that was a really good talking point mm. for everybody to come along because I was presenting some ideas that uh, were seen on the more radical scale of radical thinking. <laughs> and it, I wanted to be able to back myself up with others. <laughs> so what I am is uh, just an amalgamation of like all these different points of view that I've been able to like kind of flood my brain with over the last couple of years and they ranged from like spiritual th- thinkers like Krishmanerti to Aldous Huxley I'm hugely influenced by um, so some classic literature as well as anarchism uh, with Emma Goldman uh, so I was kind of presenting them to others and I was gifting them as a gift economy um, so I fully adhere to that idea because I felt like it um, created um, really meaningful exchange and they were able to I feel that they're going to cherish the book more because I was able to gift it to them and because I created that connection um, there with them as for the uh, workshop itself it was it, it was it was just open to anybody. Uh, I said that specifically. I was no, I didn't, I didn't have a script. I didn't stand up and talk. It was just like a circle of people talking. And it turned into a bit like a insurrectionist anonymous club. So it was like, this is how I feel about the state of the world. I would like to go and smash everything and destroy everything because it hurts me. I'm in pain. But I, I can't bring myself to do that out of fear, out of like, um, you know, I'm going to, people are going to come down hard on me if I do this. Um, people aren't going to understand that this is actually, you know, a cry for the humanity that's lost instead of uh, like just um, violence for violence sake. Uh, so it was really uh, amazing to hear these points of view and to be able to connect with these people because I've been there, I am there, I'm currently there. Like uh, being on the uh, on the on the train uh, early morning, I feel so much pain seeing all of these people that are just really depressed and going to these jobs that they hate, and you know, uh, flooded with all of this like negative news all of the time. Like I want to smash things for them. <laughs> So that then they can smash things too. So it's kind of like an anti-capitalist um, therapy session. Yes, <laughs> that's uh, exactly. I mean, I most conversations I have with people turn out that way, so it wasn't that much of a surprise. <laughs> but, yeah. That was one of the really nice things about the. You know, I went to three workshops over the day, and all of them had a really open, encouraging. You know, I, I felt like I I was encouraged to speak my mind. I was, you know, there wasn't. There wasn't a lot of feeling of like, which I suppose is what you should expect at an Anarchist conference. There wasn't a lot of feeling of groupthink. There wasn't kind of like, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was nice to be, um, yeah, supported to say some controversial things or things that you feel like by saying you're going to be, you know, told that you're wrong or told that it's the wrong approach. It didn't seem to be really that. What was, um, you know, so the the event you ran was called Emergence. What um, what's emerging? 
it's an entirely new way of existing. So in the in the new age movement, um, there's a lot of talk about like raising ourselves to a higher consciousness, and like we're able to do that now. And I wanted to take that idea and kind of do away with this higher lower consciousness branch, and instead just look at it as emerging. So it's it's entirely new properties that are coming forth, and it's not necessarily higher or lower than anything else, and it's not necessarily contained to any kind of religious connotations. But the principle, we are we are evolving. Uh, and we do need to continue to evolve to be able to continue to adapt to our environment as it consistently changes around us. So whatever will come forth, this evolved human, whatever it is, whether it's a transhuman cyborg, I had a couple of those conversations, mm-hmm. or, or, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or it's um, you know something more naturally defined, if you can say that. Uh, what is it natural that's occurring, yeah. though? What is? What is it? You yeah, know, it's all true. it's all a product of the nature that we live in. Even if it's technological, it's still natural, I believe. Yeah, and even mm. I wouldn't say that I'm I'm natural because everything that I am, I've been able to acquire through technology. So. Yeah, and like yeah. I don't know, it is still a product of the universe. You know, I don't think that humans are an unnatural force. Mm. And well, the society around us shapes us as well, doesn't it? Definitely, and it's natural. It may not be pleasant, it may not be well designed, but it is still a product of the natural forces mm. of the world as we are. I think this idea that us and our creations are somehow separate from nature is mm. a really dangerous one. And I look forward to technological body modifications. I just see it as the next, the next stage. You're, you haven't seen The Terminator? Of course I have. No, actually, I have to tell you the truth. That's a lie. I just lied on radio. I haven't seen the Terminator because I was raised in a household where I was raised in a household where American film was seen as poison. Oh, me too. So, oh, that's a good one. Um, well, Terminator one and two. The others, you know. Whatever, you can leave those, but Terminator 1 and 2 serve as a warning to everybody about the dangers of technology, and I suggest everybody sounds watch like those immediately. Sounds like you're stoking a moral panic there, James, and um, <laughs> just like your predecessor, James Cameron, I saw a bit of a, in, I saw a documentary about James Cameron, director of the Terminator films, I believe, is that yes. correct? He is one weird unit. Do you know, he like, his, what he's doing now with all his squillions of money is building these one person submarines and going deep into the Mariana Trench. He's done it multiple times. So he goes alone. Yeah. If the thing breaks, he is deader than dead. You know, the, the pressure on the on the machine is so intense. And his poor wife sits at the top in this radio contact with him, just losing her mind for the whole twelve hours while he has his little self discovery exploration. He doesn't you know, there's very little safety I'm sure there's lots of safety equipment, but it's all about like him descending into the unknown. He makes these huge feature length films about his exploration journeys it's so self-aggrandizing yes well if you had um, paid more attention to what james cameron was um, talking about in terminator you would see that it's totally necessary but unfortunately we must move on to our regular programming (laughs) i need a nerve there with james (laughs) over the wall um so as i said this week's over the wall is continuing discussion that we had last week please enjoy hello i'm duncan graham and this is over the wall Today, we resume our discussion with Vern Hughes, Director of Civil Society Australia, about emerging problems with the National Disability Insurance Scheme.
Vern Hughes, the father of two autistic children, has been an activist on the National Disability Insurance Scheme for some time. His organisation, Civil Society Australia, is convening a conference called Fixing NDIS in early September. Vern began by expressing his frustration with passing the $22 billion annual budget when the NDIS reaches full rollout. He also called attention to problems with the Centrelink-run NDIS portal. How much of that $22 billion is made up of the individual budgets, that is, individual packages for the 460,000 people that NDIS was originally set up for? Now, we can't find out how much of that $22 billion goes to admin and management and how much of it goes to direct supports for people with disabilities. That information just isn't made available and like all government departments, they hide that information away. They don't disclose it. They don't put it up there very clearly where you can find it and look at it and compare it with other organisations to see if it's reasonable or not. And that's been a huge problem because we do know that in all organisations like this, the excesses in admin and management tend to blow out in the early days. And very typically, the IT system in NDIS over a billion dollars has been spent on it. It still doesn't work very well. The users of NDIS services are supposed to be able to have a portal where they can see their package of money, they can see all the itemised items of expenditure, they can see what's been spent, how much they still have. But of course it's not working very well despite a hell of a lot of money already being spent on it. And this just seems standard operation now for almost every government organisation. As budget blowouts loom, some disabled Australians are beginning to find themselves exiled from NDIS funds. Vern used examples around autism, blindness and deafness to demonstrate emerging inequities. Dismantling of state-based services exacerbates these problems, as Vern also explained. Autism is a complex thing and it often coincides with another kind of disability or two two or three different disabilities so the level of impairment of a person's capacity will vary greatly now because autism is a complex thing and measuring its impact requires a fair bit of expertise it's become clear that NDIS in its staffing in the early days just hasn't had the people with expertise in autism to be able to understand the detail of what it is and what its impact is and quite erratic decisions made about funding of people with autism, sometimes, you know, very sizable packages of support, sometimes very minimal, and yet the condition in each case is often very similar, but, you know, widely divergent packages of support. Now, that's a major problem. NDIS now realises that some of the packages early on were excessive and they're winding them back, but that's going to be difficult to do because it will lead a sense of inequity on all sides. In an area like deafness, for instance, the same general rule applies that if you're deaf, you're not automatically eligible for NDIS support. You usually have to demonstrate that you've got another disability as well, and the combined effect of the two means that you need support to do a range of daily functions. But what's happening in practice is, of course, that Many people with deafness have applied and been unsuccessful, not eligible for any support, 
whereas others who perhaps had deafness and one or two other disabilities have done particularly well. But the inequity there and the fact that many people with deafness will not be eligible for any support will mean there'll be problems because one of the things that's happened is that state governments have generally decided to discontinue their state-based services. Part of the deal between the federal and state governments was that in return to the setting up of NBIS, state governments would contribute to the cost and at the same time basically close down most of their state-based services. So, for instance, services for people who are deaf will close at, at the state level. A lot of services for people with autism will close. A lot of mental health services at the state level will close. And the assumption is that NDIS uh, will cater for all of those people. What's happening, of course, is that NDIS is only going to cater for some of them. In some cases, perhaps 30%. So there's going to be some very big holes emerge in the next year or two as we discover that a lot of people who you would think would be eligible for NDIS services will find themselves ineligible. When the NDIS was first floated, productivity gains arising from the funds supporting disabled Australians into work excited the political class. Vern went on to address the likelihood of these employment outcomes. One of the key arguments when the case for NDIS was being put to politicians was the thought that in time, better support for people with disabilities would see fewer people unemployed fewer people on disability support, pension and new staff, and people's ability to participate in the paid workforce would increase. In reality, the questions around employment are quite separate and they're also quite complex issues. NDIS, by and large, has the role of assisting people to participate in daily life and in basic social and community life to the best of their ability with some support. It doesn't set out to assist people into employment, and yet you're really only going to see productivity gains when people do move into employment. The trouble is the employment question is a whole different field, and it's clear that there are a lot of blockages that stop employers from taking on people with disabilities, and unless there are significant financial incentives and unless there are some really good programs which enable people to get some support, some hands-on support in performing mainstream work jobs, that there's not going to be any dramatic take-up of people with disabilities into the paid workforce. I think governments were very naive to a certain extent in buying this idea that NDIS was going to help people get off welfare, and it just isn't going to happen unless there are some really major and effective new initiatives in the employment area. So I don't think that those sort of productivity changes are going to happen anytime soon. And until they do, the spending from government in these areas is not going to decline. It's going to continue to edge up. Want to check out the conference? Google Civil Society NDIS Conference to find out more. Over the Wall aims to be at the conference to talk to a whole bunch of folks who are dealing with the NDIS. In the coming months, you'll hear more from us on this. We thank Vern Hughes for his time and his expertise.
That was Over the Wall, and um, right now, I had a chat, I was hoping to get Chris to be on live with us, but he's unfortunately travelling across the country at the moment, um, but a, tra- a trip that he did go on um, just a couple of weeks ago was with the Gaza Peace Flotilla, and it's a really interesting tale, um, and I, I, it is quite a long interview actually, but it wasn't, I wasn't able to even ask um, all the details that I wanted to so people want to find out more um, about Chris's trip and those that were on the flotilla should check out New Matilda because Chris is writing a couple of articles that will be up um, in the coming days. But um, stay tuned and listen to Chris. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. And right now we're chatting to Chris Graham, who's the editor of New Matilda. And I think a lot of listeners may have heard... Um, perhaps across their, their social media feeds and, and across the news as well. They've recently taken part in the Freedom Flotilla uh, to Gaza and had, I, I think, a very eye-opening and interesting experience of, of what um, what's happening over there. And, uh, you know, the flotilla, you know, is intended to try to break Israel's blockade of Gaza, which stops vital supplies being able to reach Palestine. And it's something that's taken place, I guess, a number of times over the last few years. Um, and Chris, so thank you so much for uh, having a chat to us. Yeah, pleasure, Dan. So can you tell us, I guess, you know, what were your expectations of, of the journey to start with, uh, you know, of the journey itself, and, you know, if you're able to kind of dock um, at Gaza, like what that may look like? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it was my second attempt to get to Gaza. I tried to get there in 2016 by land, and, and uh, Israel refused that, Um but my expectations of the trip were were pretty much what happened, to be honest. I mean, we didn't expect to break the blockade. We The, the flotilla expected to be um, intercepted by the Israeli military, which is what happened. Um, I expected the Israeli military to be um, violent, uh, which is what happened. I expected them also to try and uh, spin it a bit and portray themselves as, you know, uh, a moral army, which is which is what happened. And... Um, I expected it to be an extraordinary story, which it is. So it, you know, it lived up to all the expectations. It took a bit longer than I thought. I was away for three weeks and, um, almost three weeks, which was a bit longer than I'd anticipated. But, um, overall it kind of, you know, with all the things that can go wrong on a boat in the middle of the ocean or the middle of the sea, um, you know, it's a logis- it was a logistical nightmare for the organisers. Um, but, all things considered, it, um, it it went it proceeded pretty much as I thought. What's that anticipation like? You know, you said that you kind of a lot of your expectation, and I I understand there would be a lot of preparation in uh, beforehand to take part in something like this. Um, but what that anticipation yeah. of the Israel Defence Force boarding at p- particular time, and like you said, just you know, I guess at any point it, when you're on in the sea like that, different things can happen as well. But I guess a particular anticipation of what that may feel like. Yeah, look, it kind of built as we went. And, and I did prepare, you know, quite some time, spent some time preparing before I left. And 
when I got to uh, Sicily, um, which is where the boat was docked for the final leg to Gaza, um, we did a few days of training uh, with the Freedom Flotilla Coalition who organised you know, training about what we could expect, uh, the sorts of things that might happen, the kind of best and worst case scenario. Um, so it kind of, you know, it built a lot of... Um, uh, it built a lot of anticipation around what might happen. Um, when we got to sea, it was rougher, certainly rougher than I expected. I mean, I've worked on boats as a young fella, but it's been years since I've cruised around a, a sea. Um, that was challenging, but um, we we had always, with a coalition, I actually went there as a journalist, I didn't go there as an activist, but I, so I keep using the royal we, but um, we had said we would um, arrive on... on uh, we would probably arrive in Gaza on July 20, Sunday, July 29. Um, we pulled up a little bit shy the night before of where we could have been so that um, when we entered waters that we thought Israel might attack, um, it would be daylight rather than nighttime because it's less dangerous in day- daylight. And the next morning on the Sunday, we, we started um, sailing towards Gaza again and by lunchtime, the Israeli Navy had made contact. They spent an hour, um, hour and a bit, uh, trying to uh, talk us into turning around, which we didn't do. And then, all of a sudden, um, warships started appearing on the horizon. So, your question: what, What's it like? The anticipation? It's a very surreal experience to be on a boat and gradually be surrounded by warships, and then. Um, smaller patrol boats and zodiacs full of commandos. It's a very, very surreal experience. And I guess, you know, in that time, I guess you don't really know what to expect. I mean, the, as you said, the Israeli uh, Defence Force, are, um, you know, like to spin things in, in their own way to justify their actions. And, you know, they're yeah. a, a force that, you know, is second to none of any of those kind of um, military forces across the world. And, so I guess when those warships are coming up, uh, you know, are you thinking are they going to fire on us, or, you know, I guess you don't know what what is going to happen, and then well, when they do yeah. board, what happens from there? No, you don't know, and and look, your mind can you have ten days at sea to kind of uh, work it up in your head a bit, and it does. It is um, certainly intense. All right, my personal view is that it was in the Israeli Defence Forces' um, interests to make this as peaceful as possible. And I always believed they would. Um, they w- it would be a violent raid, and it was, but, but it would not be at the level of violence of, say, um, 2010, when they killed 10 people, there, including two journalists. Um, six of the people they killed, the United Nations found in a report, was summarily executed on board the ship. Um, mm. They injured dozens of others, and they tortured, literally tortured, according to the United Nations report, hundreds of um, activists who were involved um, on one boat called the Mavi Mamara. Um, but I didn't think there'd be a repeat of that because um, the international condemnation of Israel was swift and severe, and that's very rare. Israel has committed all sorts of atrocities. Um, even this year, the, the killing of more than 150 unarmed Palestinians on the Gazan border um, has drawn no sanction, really, from any, uh, any serious sanction from anywhere around the world. Um, but Israel doesn't want to head back to those days where it is, you know, being widely condemned for its murderous actions. So I always thought that the boarding would be violent, but it sounds strange, but violent, but comparatively peaceful. And that's what it was. I mean, there were people um, who 
were not harmed, such as myself, and then there were people who were harmed, um, such as the captain of the boat and a few others. I guess before we um, go but, into... But I sort, of did know what to, I, I sort of did know what to expect, and what I expected is pretty much how it went. Um, as I say, yeah, before we go into perhaps some details around that, I wonder what is it like as a journalist to be amongst that kind of, um, you know, to be in the story and then to be thinking about how do you report on that? Yeah, it's actually yeah, it's a really good question and it's a very challenging, um, it's a challenging role because you can't help but get close to people in a situation like that. I mean, it's a very, very intense experience and, you know, 10 days at sea on a boat in very cramped conditions with, with 21 other people um, and there were two boats in the final leg, so there's another boat with 12 on it. But I was on the our order, which had um, 20, 22 people, including myself, on it. And and you inevitably form some friendships, and they're unusually intense friendships because the the situation is so extreme. Um, but what we ha- uh, there were two other journalists on board with me, and we had a talk to the group the the afternoon before we expected to be intercepted the next day. And had to make the point to them that um, we're there as journalists, so we're there as observers, and and we're ethically and, and morally bound to report what we see. So if activists engage in conduct um, that that becomes newsworthy for whatever reason, um, I'm ethically bound to report that. So we kind of warned them that you know if you if you do the wrong thing, if you provoke the Israeli military, you, you'll get the response from the Israeli military almost certainly, but it will also I'm I'm bound to report that. I can't depict you as something that you aren't. So it was a challenging a challenging role. Um, and then, you know, having been forcibly boarded by the Israelis, I was then treated the same as everybody else, even mm-hmm. though I was a journalist, and, and jailed alongside the same people. So you know, my cellmates were all um, activists. Uh, so it's a it's a really extreme position for a journalist to be in. But um, you know, and I'm still writing uh, the, the kind of main features from the story. And there will be things in there that I think um, quite a few of the activists don't like in terms of my perception of the Israeli soldiers and what have you. But you know, I've they had a job to do, which is to be activists, and I had to have a job to do, which is to be an honest broker and an observer. So we'll see what comes down the wash. But, you know, it's, it, it really was a very intense experience, and I, I, I made friends on that boat in a fairly short space of time that I imagine will they'll be friends um, for a very long time. Has it changed your perception of, um, I guess, I, you know, and there's a number of things, I guess, of... of the situation in Palestine of the Israeli soldiers, of the activists that engage in these kind of activities? It's a really it's another good question. It, it did a bit, and which surprised me. Um, uh, I, you know, I already have a perception of, of the Israeli Defence Force, and it's not a good one. I mean, I've been through the West Bank and seen how they conduct themselves there. This was something else entirely. It was much more extreme, but... Um, Surprisingly, I found myself um, after the boarding and when things had settled down, we were under guard then for about 10 or 12 hours as the boat was driven to to Ashdod, the nearest Israeli port. So we were held on the boat, all sat up on the deck and guarded by soldiers. And um, 
I found myself feeling quite sorry for the soldiers because um, they were very young, uh, most of them. Um, half of them were women, half of them were men, and they were all clearly there as part of their national service. When you, as an Israeli, once you finish school, you're then required to do three years mandatory national service in the military. So whether you like it or not, you're going to serve in the military, and if you serve in the military, you may be forced to do things you don't like. And clearly what Israel did um, uh, was immoral, and it was also illegal. Uh, it's clearly illegal under international law. And I found, found myself wondering how the soldiers involved in this would feel about it, not, not just at the time, but when they look back in hindsight, would they be proud of the, of the things that they did in the military? And this would be one of those things I think that they would struggle to reconcile, you know, if they're introspective people. And they're not all going to be like that. But I found myself, I, I was surprised that I had some empathy for the people who had just stormed our boat and, you know, at gunpoint and tased, uh, tased and beaten uh, activists. I found myself, uh, you know, it's a weird position to be in and it's a weird thing to try and analyse. And I'm still trying to process it. I'm still trying to work out where I go with that in the story. Hmm. Was there a chance at all to tell uh, your story to, to those soldiers? I mean, were you given a chance to... There was. There, there sort of was, and that's probably the most moving part of the whole journey, for me anyway. When we were being um, taken back to Ashdod, um, as I said, it was 10 or 12 hours, so we were on board with them for a long time. And um, as it got dark, the, the, act, the group of activists realised this would probably be the last time they would all be together in the one spot because, you know, people get shipped off to different prisons and it all kind of falls apart from that point. So they all sat around in a group and started talking about um, their experience and it was, you know, it was a chance for people to, to reflect on, on what they'd been through and to thank people for the things they'd done and what have you. It was a really nice moment. But there was one, um, there were two people in particular, um, Mikkel Gruner, who was um, one of the crew from... Uh, Norway, and, an, and another man called Jonathan Shapira, who's an Israeli Jew, uh, who served in the IDF himself. Uh, and they both gave incredible speeches to this group, but the speeches were more directed at the soldiers who were standing guard. And Jonathan's in particular, he made the point that, you know, he basically, he was addressing the soldiers as opposed to the group. And he was saying, some of you will, um, when you leave your military service, you'll go to Goa in India or Thailand for your three-month um, holiday, you break, um, and you'll reflect on your time in the IDF and you'll think about um, the things that you've done and whether or not you're proud of the part you played um, in the Israeli Defence Force. And many of you will come to realise that um, you're not proud of it and that you can't reconcile what you've done and that um, you're ashamed of uh, the actions of, of yourself and your government and you'll become activists like I did against your government um, and I watched the soldiers and all of them without exception were watching and listening intently to what he was saying now what they were thinking I can't tell you but it was significant that he held not just the attention of the activists but that he held the attention of the soldiers as well uh, and here's an older man who served his time in the IDF talking to a group of young essentially uh, you know most of them are kids um, and and kind of imparting on them what happened to him. So I I found that to be an inc it was an inc you know if we could have filmed it it would have been a 
amazing. Mm. Um, but of course, all our equipment had been seized by that stage, and we had no way to film it or record it. But um, it was an extraordinary part of the part of the trip. It sounds like a really powerful kind of moment. And I guess yeah, I was it wondering. Was, yeah. and I guess another kind of journalist question is how, in those moments, you, you can't. You know, I assume you've had everything taken off you, so you have nothing yeah. but your memory to try to recall all of this information and yeah. all of these moments and, and try to then, you know, recapture them the best you can later, I guess. Yeah, look, I, that is, that's what happened. They took my notebook um, as soon as I was taken into custody. Uh, and uh, they took my notebook and, you know, I wasn't allowed to do anything um, but sit there. And... Um, so I started memorising stuff in my head and um, I came up with the phrase GOMPH, which is G-O-M-P-H, and I tried to remember single words which would jog my memory about um, about different incidents that I wanted to include in the story. So GOMPH stood for Goon, which was the behaviour of one of the Israeli soldiers who beat and tortured the captain in the bridge. It was horrendous what was done to him. Um, o was for the oil fields that we passed through, which were essentially have been stolen from Palestinians. And I kind of like the irony that we're now on a stolen boat being driven by Israelis through an oil field that Israel has also stolen. Um, M was for... Um, oh, I'm trying to remember now. Um, oh, M was for a comment that one of the soldiers made when he was trying to goad the um, activists into um, some sort of additional... Unrest, like so, uh, there was a goon sitting there, basically goading the activists, trying to start trouble, even though the activists were now not resisting and, and were under arrest. Um, and he said, he, he literally said, "We kill the children of, uh, we kill the kids of Gaza to make mar- martyrs of Gazan blood." So the M was for martyrs, and then the P and the uh, F was for um, one of the soldiers admitted that the Israeli army taking. Uh, everyone's passports was illegal, which I found unusual for a, for a senior soldier to admit that. And the F was the flag. They had torn, the soldiers had torn the Norwegian flag down from the ship. It was a Norwegian, it was a ship under Norwegian flag. Um, and then trampled all over the flag. Um, so there's boot marks all over the Norwegian mm. flag from the boat. Um, and one of the, one of the senior military officials they brought onto the boat after the raid to try and win us back over and try to spin things back to their advantage. He was very, very friendly, basically very sycophantic. Um, he went and collected the flag and he folded it up and he handed it to Mikkel, the Norwegian crew member, and apologised and said, I'm really sorry, that should not have happened. Um, which I also found, A, unusual, that he would do that in front of soldiers and B, uh, that he would make any admissions whatsoever. Um, you know, it was a bit discombobulating. Uh, in part, but that was in large part because Israel tries very, and this is basically what I'm, what my feature will be about, is that Israel tries to project itself as a moral uh, armed force that shows restraint, or the Israel Defence Force does. And, and of course they're not. You can't kill 150 unarmed protesters and still try to maintain the mantle of a moral army or an army that shows restraint. You just cannot claim that at all. You're, you're essentially a murdering uh, force which is what the IDF frequently is. Um, but when they boarded the boat, it was very violent and very aggressive. Um, but then they tried to bring in fresh soldiers to try and smooth it over and give us food and water and, you know, um, try and m- m- make things seem not as bad as they were. I don't know how they thought we would forget what they'd just done. 
I mean, two, two activists were tased in the face by Israeli soldiers, one of them from New Zealand. He, he had a cut on his cheek where they t- literally tased him in the face. Um, another, uh, the captain of the boat, Mikhail Gruner, was... Uh, Mikhail... Uh, his surname escapes him. Uh, uh, sorry, not Mikhail. Um, Herman uh, Rexford, the captain, um, was beaten in the in the bridge. Uh, his head was slammed into the um, dash about five or six times. Um, he was head-butted um, numerous times. He was punched in the face, basically flogged in the in the bridge because he wouldn't restart the engines on the boat. In fact, he couldn't restart the engines on the boat, but they didn't believe him, so they gave him a hiding. Um, so, that, you know, they did behave very violently, um, but they want to project this image of um, restraint and, and uh, morals. It, it's it's a facade, and you know. Is there um, any um, scope with like when people were released, were they um, asked to sign non-disclosure forms, or were they given any conditions yeah. on being released and things like that? Yeah, we were all asked to sign documents acknowledging our crime, which was to enter Israel illegally. Of course, none of us entered Israel illegally. We were, in, in technical legal terms, we were kidnapped at sea and taken by force to Israel. That's legally what happened under international law. Um, the fact that it was done by a state is irrelevant. Um, that's, that's literally legally what happened. We were hijacked, kidnapped and forcibly taken to, to uh, a place against our will. The place just happened to be Israel. Then Israel... Um, char or accused us of entering Israel illegally. We were all, well, most of us were put before a court. The court found that proved, and we were then subsequently deported. Um, it's a it's a farce and a, and a complete fiction. Um, but Israel's been doing that for a long time, and there's there's no international response. Well, there's not no, but there's very muted international response. Certainly none from Australia. Um, so you know that's. That's just, they, they kind of act with impunity. They've done a lot worse than that, of course, but yeah, they act with impunity. I think, it, I guess for people in Australia, and I think it's getting more difficult to engage people in conversations of change around militarism and war, and wars have become, I guess, more of a tech base rather than, you know, I guess some of the boots on the ground of the past. Uh, you know, so not everyone, you know, I guess not everyone can partake in actions like this. You know, what's what do you think... Your experience for the activists and you know yourself as a journalist and you know people should obviously read the articles you're going to write about this and what can that do for people? What do you think they can do in Australia? Oh look, I think if they if they simply start by taking an interest, that'll make a big difference. A lot of people don't take an interest in issues like Palestine because they say that it doesn't really affect them. But Australia is very much involved in this. We export arms to um, to Israel. Um, we export arms to countries like Saudi Arabia, um, who are involved in the, the brutal oppression of um, uh, people in Yemen. So the, the first step really is just taking interest and starting to read about the different things that are happening in these parts of the world. Um, unfortunately, that's sometimes hard to do. The mainstream media are uh, basically uninterested. Some of the ABC's reporting around um, the Middle East was excellent. Um, Sophie McNeil, um, their correspondent, I think she's left now, but she, she was a very good straight shooter on issues of Israel-Palestine. Um, but failing that, you've kind of got to go to independent media like New Matilda and um, 
you know, the Electronic Intifada is a very, very good um, uh, publication to get that sort of uh, reported from. Um, so taking an interest would, uh, is a really good first step. And, you know, if you do start to take an interest and you start to become informed on these issues, you'll come to understand how utterly horrendous the behaviour of some of those countries is. Um, and hopefully that will motivate you to start taking more concrete action. Well, I'd love to chat to you further, Chris, and I think that listeners, I'm sure, would love to know, I guess, a bit more detail around, you know, what happened when people, when the IDF boarded the, the boat and, and what that felt like um, and those kind of experiences. But I'm sure that they'll be able to soon read about it on New Matilda. Uh, so yeah, I'll have a story over the next few days. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm sure the listeners have been really anticipating to hear from you and the other activists and journalists about what happened. Yeah, great. Thanks for the opportunity, Jack. Thank you. Well, that was um, our interview with Chris Graham, and, yeah, it's a really interesting kind of um, chat about what happened on the Freedom Flotilla, and I think there are a couple of articles uh, at least one up already um, on New Matilda, so people check that out. It's really interesting, that story he told about the uh, ex-Israeli soldier, now an activist, standing up and making a speech to um, their captors at the time, or the people that were holding them, um, who were also IDF members, about how when they look back on their behaviours uh, as members of the Israeli Defence Forces, they will turn into activists themselves. And I think it is a real... Um, area of opportunity in a world... I mean, I take into account what you were saying there about the increased uh, technology of warfare and boots on the ground, but there are still thousands of soldiers around the world deployed currently, you know, Australian soldiers, US soldiers, Israeli soldiers, and they're experiencing... I mean, we have to remember that while they perpetrate terrible violence, they are also experiencing some of the worst that this, the current system... Uh, create some of the worst experiences, some of the worst environments. So the opportunity for them to be uh, radicalised against the system that creates this perpetual warfare is a good one to remember, I think. Yeah, I guess um, my question uh, was also referring to, I guess, the type of, of warfare that is engaged in now. It's there's Sometimes there is one kind of aspect of, of a, an army there, but they're not fighting another army. They're fighting citizens and, you know... Yeah. That means that it's difficult to have engagement. I, I would argue that um, that is a probably one of the most difficult processes would be to actively try to kind of turn um, an IDF soldier. I think that uh, you know afterwards there are a lot of um, soldiers that do kind of take a turn to realise some of the things that they've done, and, mm. and I, I would argue that the kind of engagement that they have is on par with some of the most horrendous kind of aspects of militarism around the world. But, you know, a lot of soldiers, we were just talking off air about, um, you know, a lot of soldiers then end up kind of, you know, regretting their actions and being opposed to war as well. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible thing. It would be my, a terrible um, thing to go through. My grandpa um, was in World War Two, and he would often talk about the kind of horrors of war and was very much anti-war and so were the kind of people that, um, you know, he was associated with. And I think it's a very common, and it was actually, it's a very common feeling. And I think, you know, if we think about Australia and things like Anzac Day and Remembrance Day, if we go back to before John Howard's era, 
that was actually how most of those days were celebrated was talking about the kind of horrors of war and that mm. we don't want to go back to that kind of thing. But John Howard kind of re-energised us into a fever pitch around celebrating war. Nationalistic as, pride. As he prepared us mm. for the two wars, two major wars that he sent Australian troops to. Yeah, there, and there's been, you know, those wars were horrendous experiences. I think your point that, you know, the way that warfare has changed now, that often combatants are fighting a civilian population or looking for an invisible, uh, unfindable enemy within civilian populations makes mm. that trauma possibly even more intense, you know, like this, you know, we've seen the footage of soldiers mistaking children or journalists for combatants from, you know, uh, from the air, from helicopters, thing, you know, things like that, and, you know, it's a, yeah, it's just a horrendous situation. There's a, a really good, um, it's on, it's on iView, I'm sure, you could, you could check it out, um, episode of... Uh, we need, uh, you can't talk about that, this ABC programming where they uh, speak to a number of Australian current, either former or serving Australian defence personnel about their experiences as soldiers and all of them, all of them say that war is a mistake, that war doesn't work, especially the wars that have been fought right now, which I think, you, you know, they, they're running longer than than World War One and World War Two, like the, the Iraq War has been going for 17 years. Well, the Afghanistan War is Af- sorry, Australia's Afghanistan war, I um, say. largest yeah. and the US's largest um, foreign military uh, involvement. It's, it's huge. And, yeah, it, it, I think that... It, uh, I, th- I guess I'm talking about the, the kind of disengagement that we have as well in, in Australia and, and other places, but, you know, from... That kind of aspect, as I say, like our Australian soldiers are still involved mm. in these conflicts, yet mm. it's really difficult to open a dialogue with people about um, how we can kind of affect that change and what we can do. And I think that, you know, a big part of that was that we had huge demonstrations against both these wars. Uh, initially, well, initially the Afghanistan war was quite popular. I remember um, doing stalls in the city collecting petitions against the Afghanistan war and people would spit on us and uh, try to fight us in the street, really opposed uh, people, well, they opposed us opposing the war. Mm. But the the Iraq war was met immediately with opposition and some of the biggest demonstrations the world has ever seen and yet the wars continued and I think that that was a real kind of dagger into the peace movement. Yeah, I think that for me, I was 16. It was my 16th birthday, the day of those marches in Melbourne, and I found that so disheartening. I was sure that there was no way the government could ignore hundreds of thousands of people marching in every city around the country. You know, I think I still had a strong belief in democracy and the total, their complete um, disregard for that public sentiment and the, and the ramping up and the continued ramping up of operations all across, you know, we've got troops going or, you know, military advisors going to help the blockade of Yemen right now, which is a horrendous conflict. Well, um, that has been our show. Uh, thanks for listening and please stick, um, stick on the air for Women Online.